The Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by Northrop Grumman with leadership and innovation in CWIP Block 3 and Next Generation Shipboard Signals Exploitation. Northrop Grumman's Maritime Electronic and Information Warfare Suite will be used to detect, deny, deceive, and defeat threats at sea. That's why they're a leader in Next Generation Maritime EW. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com slash EW. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, Proceedings Editor-in-Chief, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hello, Ward. Today we have a very special episode of the show, and our guest is here in the studio with us. Yeah, our guest today is Dr. Sean Mulvaney, uh, retired U.S. Army Medical Corps Colonel, a former Navy SEAL uh, and doctor who's helped pioneer, study, test, and perfect a medical procedure to treat post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. Uh, the procedure is called the Stellet Ganglion Block, or SGB, and his article appears on pages 50 to 57 in the November issue of Proceedings. So we're really happy to have you in the in the studio here, Sean. Uh, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. Hey, I can't tell you how much I appreciate being asked to come here and talk about this important topic. This is um, what I'm realizing is that with all the studies and everything that we've done, it's the it's the media and these outlets that are really getting the word out there, and that's where the rubber meets the road, and it's actually really helping people. So thank you very much. For our listeners, what is PTSD? So post-traumatic stress disorder, and actually that's kind of a, a term that's falling out of vogue, and a lot of times you'll see interchangeably used as post-traumatic stress injury, which seems a lot more appropriate to uh, how it happens, especially in our service members. So post-traumatic stress injury is when a person, and this can be, it, what's really important here is that this can happen to anyone, if the, depending on the stressor and depending on that, per, uh, that person's particular resilience, at some point all people will hit this phase if they're subject to enough stress. What it is, is when the fight or flight nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system gets stuck in the on position. And it does that because we have something called a negative bias. And negative bias was, you know, with this evolutionary, uh, where if we were, the three of us were sitting here and we walked by a cave and a bear came out of that cave and chased us, if we lived, we never forgot that cave. That cave became a memory, but not a memory, a memory without a timestamp. This memory without a timestamp, and actually the word, we use the word memory just because it's 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 an imperfect word, but it's the the best we have for it. It's actually a now. It's a happening. And so when we went near that cave, we would be filled with the same dread, the same fear for our life, the same sense of doom, the same panicky feeling of about to be consumed alive by an animal. If you can conjure those feelings, you're conjuring the feeling of if you can really conjure those feelings, that's what's going on with these people. But the problem is it's this chronic inappropriate sympathetic tone where it's happening when it the threat is not there. The threat is gone. Now, sometimes it's because they're being triggered by something. But when it becomes chronic PTSD, when it becomes really stuck, that's when they can't kick out of this loop because the brain is amping the body and the body is amping the brain, and it's it's stuck in this unproductive conversation. And when it becomes stuck long enough, there's this, this it's not a concept, there's neuroplasticity. The nerve endings in the brain actually engage in physical changes that potentiate or lay down that pathway even better. So they get better at feeling panic. Uh, they get They just improve their ability to do that. And they 
they can't really get out of it on their own. And this brings up but one point that I just like to get out there is that I see so many people with this and they feel guilty. They feel guilty that they just can't get over it. And when I see someone in my clinic, I tell them straight away, I go, look, let's just put all that aside. This is a medical issue. You have a medical issue and you don't feel guilty about not being able to get over your broken femur. You don't feel guilty about not being able to get over your cancer. And you've just got to let those unproductive feelings go. But that's harder, easier to say than do because what happens is people with PTSD, they a lot of times do things that they're ashamed of. And frankly, with service members, what actually is the final straw, what gets them to come into the clinic is when they find themselves like yelling irrationally at their kid because this this flash anger is part of the, it goes along with the anxiety symptoms of PTSD. So they'll they'll find themselves yelling at their three-year-old and their anger doesn't go from one to two to three out of 10. It goes from one out of 10 to 10 out of 10 anger and it might be about spilled milk. And they at some point they'll see themselves doing that and be horrified at themselves. And the, so the, they have a lot of guilt over what their PTSD symptoms have made them do. So part of what I try to do, it's not really care of, care of patients and medicine is an art and it's not just a procedure but letting people know that, that that was what, it's like if you were demented from a brain tumor, no one would hold that against you. These are things that we've got to help people get over the guilt and get over the stigma of, of, this, of this injury, post-traumatic stress injury. So the, the, the stigma is a big part of it, right? I mean, that, that, that's what's been holding the community back. What do you see in terms of people's willingness um, over the course of your medical practice and dealing with this? Is, it, is that... Has that bar been lowered uh, in well, a satisfactory a, way? Ward, that's really interesting because it's now become um, politically a multi-layered target. Uh, one of the unintended second-order effects that you see going on with a lot of the gun control legislation is people become, and they're they're talking about these uh, new, but you know, potential laws that if somebody has a, some kind of psychiatric diagnosis, that this citizen that defended their country may not. Uh, maybe question with their right to own and bear, you know, own arms. So a lot of people, sometimes they're, they don't want to come out. And this is something that people really don't think about or appreciate that they don't want to have their rights as a citizen infringed upon because they might have a diagnosis. Now, people with PTSD are absolutely no more likely to do violence to other citizens, despite what's portrayed in Hollywood. The numbers don't bear out. Um, but that is something that I've seen p- patients have voiced to me. This isn't my opinion. This is what I'm seeing patients voice to me, where they don't even want to have a PTSD or PTSI diagnosis. Now, the military has done actually a pretty good job at trying to bring this around and bring it around where they're like, they're trying to decrease the stigma. But the problem is you have these um, independent, strong, productive citizens that don't want to see themselves as being injured. So sometimes it's really, it's just personal where they don't want to, they don't want to reach out for help. They don't want to say that they're having a problem. And so the stigma comes from in all other aspects of their life. There are these people with PTSD. I'm, I'm so tired of Hollywood portrayals of these people as being broken. These people are firefighters. These people are, you know, police officers. These people are in the military doing their job day in, day out, doing their duties, paying their taxes, taking care of their families as best they can. They are not broken, but they have an injury that we as citizens should do our best to help them get over. It was incurred as part of their service, just like a blown off limb. 
which everyone everyone's good with the blown. You see the guy with the the cool prosthetic leg. Everyone's kind of cool with this. PTSD is is tougher, but it's a it's a it's a hard thing to take away the stigma and to get them the treatment, and to get them the treatment before their self identity changes, because you don't want them to become the PTSD guy. You don't want them to identify themselves as that and have their self image change to where they're they think they're broken stuff. They're not. They're productive citizens. They're some of our nation's best. So, so how does how is the uh, stellate ganglion block procedure different than how PTSD or PTSI has been treated in the past, and, and how does it work? So the way it works is by actually going in. So in PTSI, you have this: the brain amping the body, the body amping the brain, and it does it through part of the autonomic nervous system. And the autonomic nervous system is the think of it as the background housekeeping nervous system. Like you don't stop breathing when you go to sleep; You're, it's already breathing. You don't think about digesting your food. These are all things that are running in the background um, and keeping you alive and preparing you for fight or flight isn't something that you think about. It's just something that is running in the background. And so part of part of the brain is always interpreting: is there something dangerous happening around me? So picture yourself driving. Uh, it's a dark night. It's raining pretty hard. You got the wipers on full. And all of a sudden, the person in front of you locks up their brakes because there's a puddle in the road that you don't see. And you're about to impact them. And your whole body becomes whoosh, amped, juiced. It doesn't take two minutes. It doesn't take 30 seconds. It takes a moment till you are juiced, fully ready to go. Your body is getting braced for impact. It's getting ready to fight for its life or run for its life. You know, so th- this happens, and when this happens, it's happening through the autonomic nervous system. So that's what it does. We can take that unproductive conversation when it gets stuck, when it gets locked up. And it's a lot like if you picture, like when you have the blue screen of death on a computer, there's nothing you do on the keyboard, there's nothing you do with the mouse, there's no response. Bill Gates himself has to reach down and unplug his computer, plug it back in, let the thing reboot. And when it reboots, there's nothing wrong with the hardware or software. Essentially, what we do with the stellate ganglion block is we're going in with a long-acting anesthetic and carefully, skillfully, expertly guiding it down to where that cervical sympathetic chain lives. And we choose the six cervical vertebrae level of the neck because it's a safe level. It's the safest level to go and approach. And we put a long-acting anesthetic around it and we stop that conversation for a period of hours. The brain has neuroplasticity, so it will actually over the course of that conversation being stopped, the, those nerve endings will actually change and there'll be physical changes that happen in the brain that are durable. These durable changes allow the person when they, when they, their, the local anesthetic wears off, they come back and they're back at their baseline settings. And it's very, it's a, it's a real privilege to be able to actually, and humbling to be a part of their care because they come in and they are literally vibrating with anxiety. It's it's difficult to even, it's painful to see. And they're vibrating with anxiety and you talk them through what you're going to do and why and, and how things are going to go. You do informed medical consent. I spend a lot of time talking with my patients just to kind of have them, you're building a therapeutic relationship right away because a lot of them are flying in from all over the country, even other countries. We lay them down, we do the block. And once that block takes effect, we actually, we, we score the block five minutes after the block because we look for changes to happen in the eye that are characteristics of, of having a sympathetic block. And that tells us that we reach the brain. Um, then I just kind of let them so marinate. What, 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 what do we talk about? Does the eye dilate or is it? 
you know, uh, moving back and forth, right? What, what are you measuring there? Yeah, Ward, it's called a, a Horner syndrome. And it's uh, what happens is the pupil gets smaller and the eyelid will droop and the sclera, the white part of the eye, will get red. And other things happen, but those are the ones that we can see and measure. And it should be such that the guy from Jiffy Lube could say, your eye looks funny. This isn't subtle. This is something that oh, okay. anyone can okay. see from across the room. Right. So, um, and then when, when that happens, then we let them kind of sit. And usually around the 20 minute after block mark, what you see is that you can see them visibly change. You can see them taking in a deep breath. And if you query them, if you ask them, hey, how do you feel? Over and over, I feel relaxed. I feel calm. The noise in my head is gone. I feel like I can take a deep breath. I could, all these physical symptoms, but you can actually see it. If you were untrained, you could see that difference in the person. And a lot of them say, I haven't felt this good since high school. I haven't felt this good since the trauma that happened. So it's, it's pretty, it's like guys like things like splitting wood and mowing the lawn, like you do it and it's done. You know, this isn't something that takes a couple months or a couple weeks. This happens before they leave the clinic. So in the article, you talk a little bit about the history of the procedure. And like a lot of things in the medical field, the SGB was created for an al another purpose. And this was sort of discovered along the way, it's sort of like Botox for migraines. But hey, it also, you know, sh shrinks your, your wrinkles or whatever. Um, can you review a little bit the, the history of SGB and and? When when did it come back into, I don't want to trivialize and say back into fashion, but uh, how long has this been around? So it's been around since before the 1940s. Even in the 1950s, there were whole textbooks on stellate ganglion block and its utility, although they didn't specifically discuss, you know, what they called uh, post-traumatic stress injury at the time. But it, it turns out that being able to access and manipulate that autonomic nervous system, in particular the sympathetic nervous system, is useful for some pain conditions like uh, chronic regional pain syndrome or sympathetically mediated pain. It's useful for some, actually for some migraine conditions. It's been used to treat um, hot flashes in, in menopausal women. It has a lot of, uh, there are a lot of other uh, applications of it. Most of them don't have high-level evidence supporting their use, but they, they still have utility. So, so how did you discover or how did the team that you worked with discover its use for PTSI? There's a, a little bit of a backstory there that's a, a little bit weird. I don't know how much time we have here. We have time. This is a podcast. Yeah. So, we, all, we go deep here on the Proceedings Podcast. I'm treating a guy in my clinic. He's a soldier. And he's actually the one that the quote on the, the first part of the article when he was recalling his um his, his the flashback symptoms that he would have or this memory without a timestamp. And he, this was from Desert Storm 1. So he had had 17 years of symptoms and they were still as vivid. And I was seeing it because he had crashed his car. And it was the middle of the day. I was just, he wasn't seriously hurt. I was just evaluating him. Hey, what, what happened? What, what, why'd you have an accident? I fell asleep. Why'd you fall asleep? He kind of paused and he's like, I'm taking Seroquel. I'm like, and that's an antipsychotic. That's a heavy duty medication. And he happened to have a high level clearance and he knew that he really didn't want anyone knowing that he was on Seroquel. This was probably before the 
kind of the stigma had been lifted, but a lot of guys will just self-select. They just won't bring this stuff up. So this is when you're an army doctor, army physician, army physician, you're working with uh, special forces, uh, largely. Right. And so the, 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 your, your clinic, yep. you're teaching, you're, you're treating people who are, you know, in, in special forces or support to special forces. Elements of special operations command. Gotcha. So, um, he comes to me and he's like, I'm like, why are you taking Seroquel? He's like, because for my PTSD symptoms, because they control my flashbacks, but I hate taking it. It makes me so tired. I feel awful. I have a hard time working out. I'm like, he's like, give me anything else. I'll do anything out there. And I'm like, hey, I'm a sports medicine and spine physician. I really don't have anything in my back pocket outside of standard behavior health care. So, but I will sincerely keep my eyes open. He was really... um you could tell he really wanted out of this. And also it really wasn't working that well for him. It just kind of blunted them. Advance the clock. Let's say it was only like a week later. I'm at a musculoskeletal conference in Madison, Wisconsin. And someone walks up to me who doesn't know me. And they say, you're an army doctor, right? His name is Dom. Great guy. I know him now. He handed me a newspaper clipping about a guy in Chicago that was doing stellate ganglion blocks to treat women's hot flash symptoms. And he said, do you think this could have anything to do with PTSD? The hugest non sequitur, the hugest like, like, how did we get here? And it sounded, the notion to me sounded ridiculous. It sounded completely like, what? What does this have to do with anything? But then I remembered, I told this guy, hey, I'd, I'd run it to ground. I'd look for anything that might work. So I said, hey, thanks. And I called the doctor. It was Dr. Eugene Lipoff. And he had just published one a case series, well, not a case series, a case report of one case where he had treated uh, a case of PTSD. It actually wasn't published yet at the time. But I said, hey, Dr. Lipoff, do you think this might work for, for PTSD? And he said, yeah. And he very generously shared his hypothesis with me on why it would work. And he said, I think this could work. He goes, you're in the military. You, you should see a bunch of this. He goes, go ahead and, and you know, let me know if I can help you with anything. But he was very generous. Uh, but that, And that's where the concept came from. And that's how it came to me. So I went back and I told the guy, hey, I have no idea if this is going to work for you. But if you're willing to do it, it's a standard medical procedure. It's safe. Uh, we can we can go ahead and get it done. Are you are you interested? He's like absolutely, and he was off his meds in two weeks, all his medications in two weeks, back to normal. I saw another guy, the set patient number two, Marine, who was involved in Battle of Fallujah, a lot of close quarters combat. He came back from that deployment and locked himself in the upstairs bathroom, away from his wife and kids. Just didn't want to be around him. After about a year and a half of that, his wife left him. Uh, he. W- at that point, went and tried to get some care. Is when she was in the when he was in the divorce process, and went on uh, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, which is a commonly uh, class of drug for use for PTSD. Then, um, and he was on it for years, trying to kind of controlling his symptoms, but not really. But it was still something. But it was giving him sexual adverse effects. And three years after his divorce, he finally got to the point where he met someone who wanted to go out with him, and he came to me asking for. Uh, erectile dysfunction medications and he's like and I'm like look uh, my standard policy was if you ask for it I'm going to give them to you just because there's a story behind it so especially in young troops and if that's how I was going to find out what's going on I'm like look but I need to know why you're on these I I don't want this to be some serious medical issue let's figure this out he's like I know what it's from it's from the Paxil that I'm on 
he goes, it's, it's making it so it's, it's hard for me to have sex. And, and I met this person. We really haven't done anything yet, but I, I know it's a problem. And I'm like, you want to just get rid of it? Your PTSI? He's like, I said PTSD at the time. He's like, yeah, what can we do? I'm like, look, I did this in one guy and it worked. Do you, you want to try it? He's like, absolutely. We did his block. He was off of all his medications in two and a half weeks. I've not lost track of this guy. This is now 10 years ago. He's doing fine. He just needed one and done. And think of it. He lost his family. Think of the, the emotional wreckage that left behind. Um, think of the wreckage that this left behind when he was like locked away in his bathroom. You're taking a Marine, you know, you're taking a capable combat soldier and reduced him to a mess. And all we had to do was know how to help him. Well, now we know how to help him. And then every publication from there on, I published on that case series. That was the first military-related combat, you know, the treat, use of celiac block to treat combat-related PTSD. And then we said, all right, this is... And every time I publish, I publish now the seven papers on this. And honestly, each time I publish, I felt like I was patting together a snowball, a nice wet snowball at the top of a steep slope laden with snow just ready to go and I dropped that snowball and it would just turn into an avalanche and over the last 10 years that snowball has rolled four feet from my feet and stopped and it's only with this latest publication that came out in uh, uh, the Journal of the, Ameri uh, Journal of the American Medical Association uh, where we published now finally a level one randomized control trial so stellate ganglion block versus a saline injection a saline control injection and we were able to show that the people that got the celiac ganglion block, and we used the gold standard for, for measuring this. We used the gold standard testing for PTSD, which is called CAPS. We measured them before, and then we measured them uh, at the eight-week mark, and we showed, hey, we improved their symptoms, and it was durable. So this is, you know, now we've gotten to the point where we have good, strong evidence. Even people that don't want to believe this, are going to have to sit up and take notice that, hey, there's now level one evidence that shows. And this, for a lot of things we do in medicine, there is not level one evidence. But in this one, it is working. And so the the real, the PTSD problem is much bigger than just the military. But in the military alone, it's still a huge issue. And in the VA is, is a whole nother kettle of fish. Because DOD and VA, for, for those of you that don't know, it seems like they should be working together but they really don't. It's two very separate entities. And so now if you're an active duty soldier, there are places in active duty service member, there are places in the military where you can get this done. There are some problems though. Uh, I know it's currently down in Portsmouth Naval Hospital where there are a lot of SEALs that they, they don't want to do the stellate ganglion block for folks. And this is just a recent report that I got from a behavioral specialist that works down in that area with the, with the SEALs. And they basically said they don't want to put down they won't do the block unless they can put down a PTSD diagnosis, and these guys just don't want the PTSD diagnosis. They see the way the political winds are changing on some issues, and they just they don't want that in their profile. So they're now they're not getting treated. So we went from my research was done heavily on seals. You know, we treated uh, the lion's share of the hundred. I published another case series of 166, um, uh, basically cases of combat related PTSD, and that was. You know, essentially, I thought, oh, this is another big snowball. This will get things going. It didn't because really in academic medicine, a case series, even a, of a lot of people, is just 
dismissed out of hand by academic physicians as saying, hey, that just shows it's worthy of further study. That doesn't mean anything. It could be heavily biased. And we showed clear, huge improvements. And this wasn't like, and, and these were people that all they wanted to do was get back to their team and be a good team member. They just wanted to get back in the fight. And they were messed up. And we were able to get them back in the fight. We were able to show the first study of this kind. And this is, we talked about it in the article on neurocognitive performance. Because believe it or not, the SEALs, like if there's like a better piece of kit, they're like, gimme, gimme, gimme. They went, once they saw this was working and their friends, they were like, gimme, gimme, gimme. This is good stuff. I want this. But the, the special forces operators that I was working for, especially some elite special forces operators, they, um, they were more thoughtful about the problem. And they were like, hey, can you be sure this isn't going to hurt my ability? My, you know, I've been surviving a decade of combat. Is this going to hurt me in any way? And we owed them an answer. We owed them a, an answer like, hey, is there anything that we're doing here that's, you know, could be hurting them? So we did a study of eight standardized neurocognitive tests, including just reaction time, which you can't fake including of memory, executive function, et cetera. And we did it those battery of tests the day before. Then we did the next day we did a stellate ganglion block on them and we retested them one hour later because when they're in this period uh, uh, right after a block, a lot of times they describe feeling like they had a few drinks or kind of high, a little bit of euphoria, even though there's nothing we injected in them that makes them euphoric. They're feeling that huge difference in stress between them living with chronic stress and them, the normal them. So they feel that stress, and it's just like taking off a heavy rucksack. When you take off a heavy rucksack, you feel light and floaty. There's nothing in the rucksack that makes you feel that way. It's the absence of the rucksack. Well, I always wondered, are these guys impaired an hour after block in any way? Because all we injected is a local anesthetic. So would they be impaired? What we saw, what I wanted to show, and I didn't know what was going to happen in the first hour. I'm like, yeah, they might be because they act like they're a little, you know, like they had a few drinks or some would even say they felt a little high, which I don't know how they knew what that felt like. But anyway, <laughs> but um, and then we tested them again a week later. And what we saw, we also measured how their PTSD did. And their PTSD symptoms, as we've seen in the past, came down, you know, very strong manner, you know, over 20 points on the on the instrument that we're using to measure the, the PCLM. I thought we'd show no difference. And what we showed actually surprised me. Even one hour after block, we showed statistically significant improvements across the board in their neurocognitive function, including reaction time. So even when they felt a little bit goofy, a little euphoric, they were still quicker. And it's just like when you take that rucksack off, you can run faster. You're not going to feel like you're floating, but you can still run faster with that rucksack off. So these people, we actually, it's the first study of its kind that showed that any treatment, now this is extrapolated from those same neurocognitive tests used to test police officers and their shooting scores, used to test elite athletes and their performance. We saw that it's the first study of its kind with extrapolating out their neurocognitive performance that shows that we have a treatment that actually improves combat survivability. And there isn't one drug out there there isn't one treatment out there that's been put to that test. But here it is. We have something that we, is it a definitive study? No, but it's enough to say, hey, we're not hurting them. And in fact, we may be even improving their performance. So when I get back from a deployment, do I take that PCLM? Does everybody take that? And, and what, you say it's a battery of, of, of questions. 
what what sort of questions are in that? Can you give us an example of what so the, a question would be like on that? In the studies, it was done with a with a PCLM, which is a seventeen question um, Likert scale. In the latest study, now we're using the PCL five. It's just an updated version of that, and it's um you know questions like are you able to sleep? Are you bothered by anger? Are you bothered by, you know, intrusive thoughts about your military service? You know, so it's, it's questions along the lines of, you know, PTSD, anxiety, symptoms. And, and it's you say standard- you can't fake it. You, you, you guys know if somebody's being honest on that. Well, no, you don't know. <laughs> you don't know. And in fact, what we saw happening with actually, we had one moment, I think you're, you're alluding to one moment that I, I brought up in the article one moment in time to test that, and we did test it, and that's where uh, it was early on. I had been treating just onesies and twosies, you know, every you know month, and then I was down treating um, a highly respected uh, SEAL team leader, and I was treating his elbow, and he said, "Hey, doc, let me ask you a question." He goes, "Um, I'm having trouble remembering things." He goes, "Even people I know, I see them in the hallway, and I'm having a hard time remembering them, and I'm." I'm sitting in meetings and I'm, I'm getting drifty, like I'm important briefings, and that's not me. And I know that a lot of times the only thing guys will cop to, the only thing they'll admit to is poor sleep and poor memory. That seems like safe ground. And so whenever anybody would say anything about sleep or memory, I would just rescreen them. I'd be like, here, fill this out. This time do it honestly. And this group, his team filled these out after every deployment. And they were on three-month deployment cycles. So every time they came back, they filled these out, which not every unit does that. It was very responsible. And they screened everyone coming back saying, basically, are you okay? How are you doing with this? So they're not saying, hey, I'm yelling at my kids and it's freaking me out. They're just <laughs> saying I'm having trouble sleeping, right? That's like you said, that's code for maybe we open this up a little bit wider. But what, well, it, it was one step back. They would admit it maybe to a doctor that they trusted. But when they filled out these these screening tests, they would say, what, you know what they said. They said, I'm yeah, fine. Yeah. Because if you didn't say you're fine, then you had to go talk to somebody and you maybe they'd want to do something and you just didn't want to talk to anybody outside the, the fold. Yeah. yeah. So they just didn't. They just ignored it. So I said to this one guy that was in front of me, I said, hey, this time fill it out honestly. Maybe because I was a SEAL myself, maybe because I knew I was actually trying to help him. I said, look, there could be something here. Fill it out honestly. And it was frankly positive. And so I said, hey, you want to get rid of this? And he's like, yeah. And I, so I did a stellic ganglion block on him. He got in a car like a the next day and went to Kentucky with his like wife and four kids under the age of like six, like something that would have driven him like absolutely crazy with some mandatory family. <laughs> the best thing. possible lab for yeah. effectiveness. He came back and he got up in front of his team and he basically said, look, this is where I was at and I'm, I'm better. This is gone. My memory is back. My sleep is back. And all this other stuff I didn't even talk about is resolved. I go, we're going back into combat in a month and I need you to be sharp. So if you're dealing with this, you need to go get it treated. And they rescreened the whole team. So we had the data from when they thought there wasn't anything acceptable that they wanted for treatment to when there was something they wanted acceptable for treatment. When there's something that was going to a trusted guy and having an intervention and then going home. That was and, okay with them. And that chart is on page 54 of the November proceedings, that, that, that pre-screen and, and, and post-screen, and it shows a dramatic difference, essentially a doubling of the... Uh, it, go, it, goes from, yeah, yeah. it goes from having... PTSD. It goes from not, not having, having PTSD, PTSD to having PTSD. Yeah. A huge shift happened because all of a sudden there was something that was acceptable to them. Yeah, the stigma was gone. The with, stigma with is him gone. Going to the unit. We treated like leader. 
Yeah, and he was a respected guy, and we said, hey, look, when he made it about performance, not about getting treated, not about giving you cookies and tea and making you feel good, it was about performance. And when he put it on that level, that was the language that they were like, hey, yeah, we got it. It's about performance. They got it treated. They went back. I screened them after their three-month deployment, and they were all still below. And now they knew to answer, you know, honestly. So a few months ago, you were on 60 Minutes. There was a, a story on 60 Minutes in June about stellate ganglion block. Uh, there was some footage in your clinic here in Annapolis, uh, and you treated Dakota Meyer, the Medal of Honor recipient Marine. Uh, talk about that a little bit, because what he said as he was treated, and, and you asked him immediately, how do you feel after the treatment? Um, that was pretty powerful. And we've got a couple quotes in the article from you, uh, from Dakota Meyer. Yeah, first off, I want to say uh, Dakota's a great American. He really wants and is vocal and is very honest about his involvement with all of this and his his struggle with this. He pulls no punches. He lets people know. It's actually um, really tremendous what he's done. Uh, and even now, I'm in, I'm in contact with him, and he's willing to help out in any way to help people you know, deal with this and help people get over this. So this is... Um, but. I did Dakota's first stellate ganglion block, and he was at a point where it was um, one of the people that I had treated from uh, one of the Army Special Operations Command units basically said, hey, just, you know, they reached out to me and said, hey, you got to treat this guy. I sent him an email and said, hey, anytime, of course. He came in completely, completely modest. So here's Medal of Honor winner. He's in Fort Belvoir um, Hospital, and he could as a Medal of Honor winner, have demanded anything and stamped up and down, and he wasn't. He was just like, you know, waiting in line, taking his turn, and, you know, I had to go out and get him and bring him back. I'm like, you know, no, this is how it is. Did his blocking, he had a great response, and he had been through, he couldn't handle, even handle exposure therapy. That's a form of cognitive behavioral therapy where they really go over the trauma again and again and again until it supposedly loses its emotional steam. But just like the way you and I study for a test, we go over it again and again and again, and we lay down those neural pathways. It's at least debatable whether or not that that is productive, at least in all people with PTSD. At that least. seems based on your definition of PTSD in the beginning of the article. That seems like 180 out from what you would want to do. You know, I mean, it seems like to go over it again and again just reinforces the the fight or flight. Uh, you know. Uh, pathology or whatever i mean that, that seems like really way off and, and i'd like to caveat that with i'm not a behavior health professional i have been working in this field and helping people with this for a long time and i'm not trying to step on the toes of behavioral therapists behavioral therapists but who who do use that but what i can say is i have seen and met people in my clinic that just absolutely could not tolerate that they just could not get through it and it was awful and torturous and it was not productive for them it took them to a darker place so that is that's just my optic on it, and maybe I have a skewed optic. So I'm not I'm not casting aspersions here. I'm just giving a, giving him my optic. But, but Dakota came in, got the block. He was at the time um, admitted that he was con- you know daily contemplating suicide, um, and here he was. He had two kids, going through a lot of stress, and when he did, he he made that one comment about how it was the like, he was went from being in a, a busy Manhattan street in rush hour with traffic and noise all around him to just driving down a country road with no place to go. And that was his, his experience of it. And the thing is, I've, I've seen that again and again. 
Um, we gave Dakota, you know, a good solid block. He had a great response. He's had a couple since. Um, he has had some of them, honestly, from other doctors. And this is his words where he sometimes when they do these blocks, x-ray guided uh, or fluoroscopically guided, um, you can't see your target under under a fluoroscope, under x-ray guidance. You just see the bones underneath. And you just kind of put it at a bony landmark and pull up the needle back a little bit and hope it goes well. I've I've trained, I'm a anesthesia pain fellowship trained physician. I know how to do these under fluoroscopy. And I, I basically quickly rejected that method because it's painful. You you can't see nerves that you go through. You can't see blood vessels you might enter. You it's a it's a much more it's a big, scary piece of machine that you're using over you. They they want to put drapes over your face for no real reason for sterility over this person with intense anxiety versus they come into my clinic with an ultrasound. I talk to them. I lay them, you know, we after we talk about it and they, they're comfortable with whom I am, they lay down back on a bed. I show them the ultrasound screen. I, t- I show them their anatomy on the ultrasound. Hey, this is where we're going to go and what we're going to do. This is where the needle's going to come from. Carefully numb the skin. It's been described over and over again as a one out of 10 for pain. It's weird. It's your anterior neck. I can't make it not weird. It's your neck, but it's not painful. I'm able to guide around the nerves, around the blood vessels to the precise location it needs to be, safely deliver the medication, and people do, they do fine with it. So back to the, uh, the, the point about cognitive behavioral health, and that's not your specialty, um, but in the article, you bring out the fact that this, doing the SGB on somebody like Dakota Meyer, who was just not able to sit through that, that um, sort of stereotypical behavioral health, go see a psychiatrist and talk about and talk again and again and again and, you know, until it loses its emotional steam and it doesn't, right? That you, you point out in the article that the SGB allows somebody to then do that, right? And, yeah, they're and better. You, and, and you th- talk about a Dr. Shumi Tabasam Raman Rollins, who you worked with, uh, with, with the uh, special forces. So, and she was a b- behavioral health therapist. Yeah. And, and the combination of the two was very powerful. Yeah. And that's where it was. And not all CBT is exposure therapy. So there's, there's other things that they do with them. And I think that when you're, when you're working with a, a thoughtful, caring provider is absolutely the optimal way to do this, where you can decrease their sympathetic tone. You can decrease their anxiety. And that, and when you do it, it's not like a little baby step. It's a big leap. And that's a great therapeutic window to get them to realize they need, they need to, this to go away. So they need, there's more work to be done. So we use the stellate ganglion block as a therapeutic window to get them in with behavioral health. And when you find the right behavioral health person, like uh, Dr. Shumi Rollins, who is really just an incredible um, clinician and person, and she really could talk with team guys. She really could just get in and amongst it because they knew that she cared. She knew that, you know, what the outcome was. And when you find, you know, jewels like that, like people that know their people that they're working with that really want to help, you know, it, what, and that can be a clinician from any specialty, any walk of life. But that combination just worked really well. So it's it's the optimal way to do it is in concert with uh, a a caring behavioral specialist that can help them, you know, get over the end zone and, and keep their symptoms at bay. How, how does a guy go from being a SEAL to being a physician? How, how did that, how did that happen? <laughs> it was, uh, 
a combination of me always wanting to be a physician, but realizing I was too full of piss and vinegar to actually sit in fluorescently lit rooms for the next eight years. So I, I needed to get out there and and do something in the storm years of my life, and then, but always loving medicine. Uh, and then a, a combination of personal things. I think there's a lot of SEALs have that uh, kind of little bit of a crisis as they get promoted out of the fun. They get promoted out of the platoons and the teams, and they look and say, okay, what's next? I think there was a bit of that. There was a bit of, I was married for two years and saw my wife for three months. You know, I wanted to have a family, and I knew that that was, I'd look around and I'd see a lot of guys, you know, who are on these, you know, really tight deployment schedules and their sons were, you know, 16 years old and they're getting them out of jail and they realized they didn't know him yet. And I didn't want to be that guy. So it was a combination of things. One of the things that is not in the article that's in the November proceedings is, and you mentioned it, this article that just came out in the Journal of the American Medical Association, the JAMA article, uh, it was embargoed as we were go- doing the editing of your of your paper. And so we will now add that to the end notes. But talk about that just real briefly and what you hope to happen next. Well, that was, yeah, it was really tough because so it was a bit like being a Cassandra from Greek mythology where you were fated to know the truth, but no one would believe you. So we've known this works, but until we came up with a good level one study, and that sentence, by the way, was at least four years of my life. To make to get together the funding to make this happen to go through the research, we had the paper written for about a year and a half before it reached publication date. It just is a very lengthy process. So knowing we had this data, and then once you get accepted, uh, a publication gets accepted to a tier one medical journal like JAMA, it's um, it goes into a status where you can't even talk about it or acknowledge it. So it's, is this a necessarily lengthy process or uh, un- unduly lengthy process? Um, to me, it felt unduly lengthy, but it's the process that exists. Okay. And it goes, goes into this embargo status because top-tier medical journals value novelty. And that novelty does things like, like makes it so that when it's finally released, it didn't like dribble out. It comes out in a bang. So that can be a good thing. Like today, this is the last interview I've done, but I, you know, I've talked to Wall Street Journal and CBS Morning Show and... Um, you know, several other places. So, and, and here I am, you know, ending my day with you guys. And actually, this is the most comfortable one I've been at, you know, just because. You're you with know, the Bubba's. I'm, I'm, a, I'm with a bunch of old retired Navy guys. So, this is it. <laughs> perfect, perfect. <laughs> so, a level one study means it's a randomized controlled trial. So, that means it's very carefully constructed. That's a very um, carefully constructed study where everything from how you exclude people to, from the study, how you include them. And then you get your group that you're going to test, and then you do a real injection in some one of the groups, and then in the other group you do like a fake saline injection, and then you follow them, and you know getting them to come back for their follow up, all of this to have a really well done study, and that was, um, you know, Christine Ray Olmsted who was the the primary investigator on that. She's with RTI uh, down in um, the Raleigh Durham area. And she did a great job at really running herd on that. She was the chief researcher on that. But it was, and the second author was Mike Bartosik. Mike Bartosik is a, he's a physician down at Womack Army Medical Center at Fort Bragg. And he did a lot of the heavy lifting as far as doing these blocks on guys. I was involved, the third author involved in study design. Um, and then there was, you can look, there's, there's a raft of people that were involved in making this study happen. Um, really important and difficult to do. 
and then you watch it and then you see. And because you have blinding, because people don't know which injection they got, because you're doing gold standard testing, you can actually really show causality, finally causality. So if you just looked at uh, 160, like in one of my studies, 166 soldiers, and we, uh, and we had their their scores before and their scores, at, you know, one week, one month, three months, but that's a case series. That actually to, to people not involved in medicine, it's hard to tell the difference. So you can see what it does, but you couldn't show causality with that kind of a study. You can show that it's promising for more research, it turns out. This study, this level one study, is something that people have to stand up and pay attention to. They have to say, even the naysayers on this, and there are a lot of people who have a lot of reasons to not want to do stellate ganglion block. And I've seen, unfortunately, you know, I've, I've seen that process where there's real friction. And that, that friction is, is I, I just wanted to, so the study was a great study. The friction is not even comprehensible to me. I'll see people come in my clinic on four psychoactive medications who have been in inpatient treatments, ongoing outpatient treatments, and they're still about to kill themselves. They're still maxed out on every score that you can measure their anxiety, and they're not productive citizens. Why didn't you send them to me? Why don't you give Steli Ganglion Block a chance? Did the 18 papers that were published on this that showed safety and efficacy before today, that wasn't enough? I'm hoping that today's study will be the straw that breaks the camel's back. And it's a good, scientific, well-done study. It's a good piece of uh, evidence and my finest contribution to the medical literature if this can help you know, people get help. And the problem is it's much bigger than just the military. One in four women have been sexually assaulted. I see... Uh, police officers and and firefighters have the exact same PTSD, the exact same symptoms. You take a firefighter with three kids at home carrying burn kids out of a building. After he does it his fifth time, he's going to be messed up. And I've seen these guys, and we were able to turn them around. And actually, it was his in this one particular uh, Baltimore firefighter, his wife drug him down by his ear to my office and said, "We're getting divorced. Or are you getting fixed? <laughs> because I'm not putting up with your stuff anymore." And we did one SGB, he's back. That was like six months ago. He's fine. Like he's back to being a good dad. And that's, you know, that's where it's at. And we have so many people in this country like subject to terrible childhood abuse, you know, who, and those are really the tough ones when it's really ingrained. We have, look at just civilian trauma that we have. You know, right here in Annapolis, not far from here, we had a mass shooting at the Capitol, you know, in, at the Capitol Gazette. You know, and it's a horror show. And when that happened, I did offer, you know, I reached out to the editor and said, hey, look, here's my experience with this. I'm happy to help treat any of you guys for free. I will not publicize that we're doing this. I never heard from them. But they had a, a time at the time of the, the incident, I'm sure they had a lot of offers for help. So it was just one more. But I, the offer stands if any of them ever listen to this. This has been a fascinating interview and a great discussion. The article is in the November issue of Proceedings. It's called PTSD, Treat the Epidemic in Our Ranks by Colonel Sean Mulvaney, Medical Corps, U.S. Army, retired. Sean, thanks for coming into the, to the studio today. Hey, Ward and Bill. Uh, in particular, Bill and I have been, we've been friends for years. So this is a real treat for me to be here. I can't tell you how much I sincerely appreciate the chance to talk about this. Thank you. It's our pleasure. Thanks, Sean. Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. Northrop Grumman applies electromagnetic maneuver warfare to seamlessly target and combat enemy threats across any domain. 
by leveraging traditional spectrum-based and next-generation innovations, they're giving your forces a decisive advantage. That's why they're a leader in transformative airborne EW. To learn more, visit northofgrumman.com slash EW. The Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by Northrop Grumman, with leadership and innovation in CWIP Block 3 and next-generation shipboard signals exploitation, Northrop Grumman's Maritime Electronic and Information Warfare Suite will be used to detect, deny, deceive, and defeat threats at sea. That's why they're a leader in next-generation maritime EW. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com EW.